0: Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. My name is Peter Kim. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to be with you this morning because we get to dive into a short mini-series over the next four weeks on the book of Jonah. Now, I don't know what happens for you when you hear the word Jonah. I know for me, growing up in the church, maybe you did as well as a child. Uh, It is my task this morning to try to debunk uh, maybe what comes to your mind when you think of Jonah, when you close your eyes, the book of Jonah. It might be an image like this that's on the screen. Uh, this is an image. Now? Maybe. Maybe not. There it is. That it's, uh, Jonah is more of like a cartoon character. Right, here's Jonah. He's got the beard. He falls into the water, and then this ginormous fish or whale. It is my duty this morning to make sure we try to course-correct. That the book of Jonah in a lot of our minds has become this veggie tales animated version, and what we have to come to grips with this morning, what we have to all agree to before we dive into a single verse in the book of Jonah, is to be convinced in the same ways that Jesus was convinced, that Jonah is a historical figure. He is not Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, he's not the Easter Bunny, he is a historical figure. If we were to study 2 Kings 14, we'd come to find that Jonah is a prophet. A prophet that actually, uh, his short little sliver of a narrative in the Old Testament, it describes how he's a prophet that gives a, an incorrect word. Another prophet has to come through and actually correct his words. So Jonah's not painted in the, in the best of lights in the Old Testament. And then we get this, Jonah 1 to 4. What I'm convinced of is that this is this is Jonah's diary. You know when you write in a diary or a journal in like the eighth grade or the ninth grade and it and it wasn't all that pretty. Like you look back, it's like, did I really think those thoughts and say those things and hope in those realities? The truth is, yeah, you did at one time. I'm convinced that four chapters of Jonah is the journal of Jonah. And I would argue it's it's the worst week of his life. Like it's it's one of those weeks that you don't want anybody else to ever know about. And theologians historians, they can't all agree that Jonah was the one who actually put pen to paper of these four chapters, and yet they all agree that he's the only one that would know these intimate details. So whether he's storytelling it, and someone else is putting it to paper, or he wrote it himself, we can all agree this is the journal of Jonah, the diary of his, and we get a glimpse into his story. You see, this is unique for a prophet. Other prophets like Joel, just a couple of books before, or Obadiah. These prophets, these minor prophets, it all begins the same way. The word of the Lord came to Joel. And then it's a long discourse. Maybe some poetry, some conviction, some warning. With Jonah, we get his story. We get to experience with him the worst week of his life. And so I hope you're ready for this. I love the book of Jonah because it speaks so near and dear to my heart. Tim Mackey is a, uh, the founder of Bible Project. if you've read, listened to those podcasts or watched those YouTube videos. I also had the privilege of having him as my Old Testament professor in seminary a couple of years ago, and he would describe the book of Jonah as the Saturday Night Live of the Bible. And that's not because it's acted or false. It's because it's satirical. It's meant to portray for us real hard truths about you. And it's supposed to invite you in to laugh, ultimately, at yourself. And so I hope it serves that purpose for us this week and for the following few, that as we dive into each chapter, you're going to be beckoned toward the journey you're on into God's missionary heart. That's what we've deemed as the overarching theme of the book of Jonah. It's your journey into God's missionary heart. And as we laugh together at Jonah, as we feel the absurdity of his story and of his life, I hope that we all get to a place where we realize, ha, that's me. That's us. And so we'll go from laughing at Jonah to maybe not laughing so hard at ourselves here in a bit. And so again, over the next four weeks, your journey into God's missionary heart. And as the spotlight shifts from Jonah onto us, we're going to get to unpack all of those moments of laughter, of absurdity together. So this week... Today, this morning, your journey into God's missionary heart will expose your empty religion. Your journey into God's missionary heart will expose your empty religion, and it will reveal the depth of God's compassion. We'll do both those things today. Empty religion, here we go. You ready for this? Let's look in the text. Look at me in verse 1 as I read verses 1 through 3 again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now we need to pause here and, and settle into some context. I love that right at the gates, they want to make you laugh. Jonah, the name literally means dove, or innocent one, or peaceful one. So here's the innocent one, son of Amittai. Amittai literally translates into faithfulness. This is the dove of the son of faithfulness. That's supposed to make you smirk. It's supposed to make you understand that this is a story about a man who's supposed to be all these wonderful, godly things. The peaceful one, the innocent one the son of faithfulness. You see, he's got a Bible name just like mine, Peter, and he's got a lineage maybe similar to mine. Dad's a preacher and a pastor. He's got all the right accolades. The church membership goes real far into the history books. See, this is Jonah, the dove, the peaceful one, the son of faithfulness, and yet he hears the word of the Lord, go to those people in Nineveh, to that place that needs to repent and turn to me. And Jonah, without a single word, And all of his actions says, no thanks, God. I'm out. Now, we need to grapple with the the contrast that is Nineveh to Tarshish. So here's a map on the screen. And this map shows just how far Jonah was willing to go to say no thanks, God. To say no thanks. So he starts off there in near near Joppa. So he goes down to Joppa. God had told him to go 500 miles northeast to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This is a political, military superpower at the time. And what does Jonah do instead? He goes to over 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. 2,500 miles. Tars- or, Tarsus is the edge of the known world. They don't know what's beyond that. He literally goes to the edge of the known world to say, Thanks, but no thanks, God, I'm out. This is the dove the innocent one, the one who's supposed to bring peace, the son of faithfulness. Now, I, I need us to recognize together that Jonah wasn't, wasn't just crazy to say no to God. The Nineveh, Nineveh to him, the Assyrians to him represent a very particular group of people. Uh, if there is um, anything akin to what we would reckon with in, in regards to the Assyrians compared to the Israelites, This would be a a people that have committed war crimes against you and your father and your father's father and all the way down the line. Atrocities. An incredibly violent people that have committed heinous act after heinous act of terrorism against you and your kin and the history books of your people. And so you can almost feel like, okay, like I understand with Jonah why he would want to maybe go in the other direction. And Tarshish is this exotic travel destination. Have you ever just scrolled through, like, how far could I possibly go? It's hot in Houston. Where could I go? Maybe, okay, maybe I can imagine, like, beach feet in the sand. Or maybe I need to go across the world to some resort in Bali, Timbuktu or Bora Bora. Where, wherever it is for you that represents anywhere but here. Anywhere. What we, what we find in First Kings is that it describes Tarshish in, in just one phrase filled with gold and silver, ivory galore. They've got animals that you've never even heard of, apes, baboons, peacocks. It represents to the readers, this is a place flowing with milk and honey where all your worries will go away. A world filled with distraction, and that's the place that Jonah wants to go. It's where he ventures off to. He flees a mad dash from God's presence. You see, what we find Jonah doing is he's drowning out the call to obey. But why? Why? It's because he has an obedience that is conditional. That's the first ingredient to empty religion. It is conditional obedience. What do I mean by that? We see Jonah responding to this call, go to Nineveh, this people that you hate and that probably hate you, And he sees the world through a lens of partiality. You see, that's the first ingredient to conditional obedience, is to view God's character and therefore the rest of the world through the lens of partiality. There are certain people who deserve God's kindness, and then there are certain people who don't. There are certain people, God, the Israelites, the faithful ones, who have done everything you've asked them to do, not really, but kind of, that, that deserve your mercy your forgiveness, but not those people. Of course, not them who've committed all those atrocities. You see, Jonah is convinced he knows better than God does. He knows who deserves his mercy better than God does. But not only that, not only the lens of partiality, Jonah also has developed a posture of reluctancy when it comes to obeying. That's the second recipe to this a lens of partiality, and a developed posture of reluctancy to actually obey God. You see, this didn't happen all at once for Jonah. He had to get really good at this. He had to develop this muscle that when God says go, he says, "Mm, Are you sure? Are you sure, God? It doesn't seem that wise to go that way. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we can all laugh at Jonah, like you're this man of God, this innocent one of son of faithfulness. How could you say no to God? You're a prophet for crying out loud. We do this all the time. As we allow the spotlight to shift a little bit from Jonah now onto you, you do this all the time. There are people that you are convinced are not worthy of your time. There are people that you and I are convinced of that aren't worthy of our energy. In this current political landscape, it it might be those, those Marxist liberals over there that aren't worthy of your time. They're not worthy of your energies. Or maybe it's over here, these privileged, racist conservatives. How how could they be worthy of God's kindness, of my effort and my energy and my time? You see, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we are so good at viewing the world through a lens of partiality. There are individuals right around us, in our communities, in this community that deserve your time, and then there's those that don't. We laugh at Jonah, we scoff at Jonah, and yet you and I are Jonah. We view the world through a lens of partiality all the time. We're really good at that. But not only that, we've also developed this muscle of being reluctant, of being hesitant, second-guessing whenever God calls us to obey. Maybe you've been here in this room, and you've been so convicted by the word preached Or you've prayed with a partner or you've talked to somebody in your house church or or somebody has said a a really convicting word and you feel like God is calling me to better steward my time. I work a job that is crushing my week, 70, 80 hours, and I know that God is telling me I could be using that time to love on my family, to pursue my neighbors, do the things he's called me to do, but is it the best time right now? I'm in line for that promotion next quarter, like maybe I could just wait it out, this week is a little bit better than last week. All of a sudden, you convince yourself, you justify your actions to just wait, just, just, just wait. Just wait a minute. Or maybe you've been convicted to obey in the ways you steward your money. And you know, because of the radical generosity that God has lavished onto you, you are called to radical generosity to those around you. And yet, you, you hear that and you wake up Monday morning and as you look at your accounts, as you survey the landscape of the next month and a couple months, you're like, well, God, did you know it's, it's a down market right now? I don't know. It's, have you looked at the Dow, God? It's, it's up one week, it's down the next. Who can know such things? I don't know if you knew this, God, but there's been a pandemic and now the housing market, you understand, right? You understand. Maybe instead of giving radically, maybe, just maybe, God, I should invest And that way, maybe next year, I can give even more. How do we feel about that? God, it's pretty strategic. All of a sudden, we go the complete opposite direction of what God has called you to obey. Why? Because you and I have developed this muscle of delayed obedience, justifying ourselves and our actions and all of our strategery. Why? Why? Because we're convinced we know better. We're convinced we know things that God doesn't. He doesn't live in our skin. He doesn't know the depth of our circumstance. And so we have developed this muscle to delay in our obedience. And what does that lead to? Outright disobedience. Blatant disregard for what God has called you to. And so we can laugh at Jonah, but allow the spotlight to drift from him and land on you this morning. You view the world and God's character through a lens of partiality all the time. You and I we are reluctant to obey that is the posture we take with God and we wonder why when God speaks all of a sudden things go awry it's because you and I have developed this muscle we don't obey because we know better we're convinced that we know best this is the first page of Jonah's journal in the worst week of his life and that first page reads We view the world and God's character through the lens of partiality. We receive God's command with a posture of reluctance. Again, this is the spotlight. And allow it to expose Jonah, and now allow it to expose you. You and me and all of our empty religion is on grand display because it's conditional obedience. It's conditional. But God's not done. God's not done exposing us of our empty religion just yet. Keep journeying with me in the text. Look with me in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I want to pause it just real quickly. Threatened to break up. I love the, the storytelling of this. That word actually means pondered. That the boat is thinking, considering, like, do I break or not break? Okay, that's, that's an aside. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, get this, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. What well, we get in this narrative now, this journal entry of Jonah, He's writing this. He's speaking this. God says, arise, get up, go this way. What does Jonah do? He goes down, down, and further still. Down to Joppa. Down to Tarshish. Down into the boat and down into the inner recesses of it. And then he lays down. It's masterful writing. What the the book, what the text is trying to reveal to you and I is that Jonah is going down and further still, but not just geographically, not just positionally, but he is drifting down into a spiritual slumber. This is the second ingredient to empty religion, is spiritual slumber. You know what spiritual slumber looks a lot like in the life of Jonah? Numbness. Numbness. Consider the situation that Jonah and these sailors are now in. He's gotten onto a boat, and the worst storm of all storms is hitting. The ship is thinking about breaking up. The cargo, their their economic reasons for even taking this journey are all being thrown overboard. Every reason why they were on this journey is now up in smokes. What are we doing here, and what is Jonah doing? He's numb to it all. Now, Now, I'm not... I'm convinced that Jonah is not down in the inner recesses of the boat, plugging his ears like, no, 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 God, la, 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 I'm not going. He is literally asleep. He's fast asleep. He's so numb to the things of God, to the commands of God, that all of a sudden he's numb to everything around him. Everyone else is very keenly aware of the situation. It's dire. It's disastrous. Jonah is sleeping. Now I'm going to show an image up on the screen. This is an image of a man, I don't know how well you guys can see that. Here's a guy, he's got some nice blue khaki, sh- he's got some blue shorts, T-shirt, and he's mowing his lawn. And there's a large tornado right behind him. I don't know if you guys ever played the game, What Do You Meme? Maybe, maybe not. It's this game where you show images like this and you put a phrase down that'll make the person laugh the most. This is what I think of, images like this. What, it's, it's a meme because it's supposed to make you laugh. Like, what are you doing, guy? Get in the house. Maybe get into your car. They interviewed him after this moment. And he was like, no, no, I had it under control. I had one eye on the storm and one eye on my lawn. I was good. But he is clearly, blissfully unaware of the situation. He has, like, we look at this image and like, this like, this is crazy. It's so crazy that it makes us laugh. You see, it's laughable, and yet, if we're not careful, it's biographical. It's biographical. What do I mean? We can stare at an image like that and laugh at the guy in his shorts mowing his lawn with the huge storm right behind him. What are you doing? And yet you and I do this all the time. When there is strain in the home, when there are probably not just one, but dozens of hard conversations that need to happen between you and your spouse, or maybe you and your loved ones, or you and your roommates, and yet what do you do instead? You go on yet another golfing trip with the boys, right? What are you doing? Are you that blissfully unaware? Or maybe there is real brokenness, real strife all around you in your relationships, and you have just been so inundated, so inoculated, because for the past 24 hours, you spent way too many of those hours scrolling through all of those Instagram stories, seeing what your friends are up to, what celebrities are doing, what the next blogger is posting. You are so distracted, your mind is numb to the things of Instagram that you can't even be present in any conversation you have for the next day. You see, we laugh at the man in the shorts mowing his lawn with the storm right behind. And yet you and I, we do this all the time. We distract ourselves instead of dealing with the things right before us. Why? Because you and I are in a spiritual slumber. We have become numb to the things that everybody else around us is so keenly aware of. And somebody should be asking you, shaking you by the face, what are you doing? What are you doing? And yet we go on living numb to all of the circumstances around us. Spiritual slumber. The other ingredient of spiritual slumber is actually prayerlessness. This is how you know that you have become so numb that your conversations with your God have ceased to exist. Did you see it in the text? The storm hits, Jonah is sleeping, verse 6. So the captain of the ship came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps you will give a thought to us that we may not perish. A thick-skinned, a, a calloused-handed sailor has to come down who worships other pagan gods, and has to look at Jonah and says, Why aren't you praying? How could you not pray right now? I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Maybe it's just me because I'm a vocational prayer, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and maybe that's you in your family, in your family, or in your inner circle of friends, or with your neighbors, and they know what you believe. You've, you've named it once or twice. They know And yet they're the ones that have to say, like, shouldn't you pray right now? Like, isn't this a good time to pray? Like, what, what does that do to us when somebody else who doesn't believe in the God we believe in has to look at you and say, shouldn't you pray? Like, isn't it a good time to pray? I don't know if that's happened to you, but that is a sign, a warning sign. You are drifting into perhaps spiritual slumber where you don't even think to pray when everybody else in the world knows you should. Prayerlessness. It's, it's comical almost that the man of God, the prophet of God doesn't know when to pray but everybody else does because he's inoculated by distractions. He's glazed over. He, ha, he does not have the spiritual eyes to see to perceive the situations before him. So much so that pagan sailors have to remind him to pray. Guys, this is, this is the epitome of, a, of an oxymoron. You know what I mean? Taking us back to kind of elementary school, middle school literature here. Oxymoron, everybody know what an oxymoron is? No, I guess not. I guess you don't know. Uh, Well, let me inform you. An oxymoron is a phrase where two opposite things, opposing things, somehow make sense to a degree together. So it would be, my favorite one is this, I love it when somebody comes to me and they say, I'm going to give you, wait for it, I'm going to give you my unbiased opinion. And I look back and I say, Okay, (laughs) sure, let's give that a try. Your opinion that is clearly filled with bias, but somehow unbiased, let's go, give it to me. What do you got? Or uh, less is more is another oxymoron, right? It's these phrases where two opposite opposing things somehow come together. You know what other oxymorons exist, particularly in this passage? A silent prophet, a silent prophet. How could Jonah receive the word of the Lord and say nothing? He doesn't even say, no, God, he just runs. That's the epitome of a living, breathing oxymoron. Let me give you some more as the spotlight drifts from him to you and to me. What about a disobedient disciple? So you claim to follow Jesus, love him with the whole of your heart, to trust him with all of your ways and your days, and somehow you disobey him? It's nonsensical. It makes no sense let me give you one more what about a prayerless believer so you believe that the god of all things of the universe hears your prayers wants to engage with you in conversation and even answers prayers and yet you don't pray The only times you pray is when you close your eyes and you pray a confession of sin for 30 seconds and then your week is prayerless. You know what that is? You are a living, breathing oxymoron. It makes no sense to be a prayerless believer. Seven Mile Road. Let's together laugh at Jonah. The nonsensical nature of his spiritual slumber and let's make sure that we are awake that we are numb to the circumstances around us, that we aren't filling our days with distraction, but in fact we are prayerful and not prayerless. We need to be a people who are awake, wide awake to the things of God. And the story continues on, right? As as we continue to to dive into this journal of Jonah, we see that there's further irony to behold. Look at verse 8 and verse 9 with me. So they cast lots right? They roll the die. Whose fault is all of this? Who's to blame? Which is something we also love to do is to blame shift. Who's to blame? And a lot, of course, falls on Jonah. And they ask him this. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They want to know, Jonah, what do you do for a living? Are you out, like, hurting people, harming people? Are the gods angry with us because you're a bad person? Where are you from? What's your history, and what's your heritage? Let's find out just how bad you are for all of this to happen because of you, and what is his response? He doesn't hesitate. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, again, this is a moment where we're all supposed to, like, laugh. This is ridiculous so Jonah let me get this straight innocent one son of faithfulness you run from God's call you do the very thing you're not you're literally called to do you do the opposite and then because you fear God you're running from his presence and let me get this he's the God of the sea and you ran away on a boat Jonah what's wrong with you you see it's, it's ironic that Jonah would even say that so quickly so confidently. The truth of the matter is, you and I, again, spotlight shifting a little bit from Jonah right onto us. If you've been in the church for some time, maybe you've been a believer for a couple of years or a lifetime, it feels like. You know what we've become really good at? Is saying all the right things, is knowing all the right verbiage to go down the histories of when we were baptized and and what churches we were part part of and, and those conferences we attended and those moments of conviction that we had. And you know what the truth of the matter is? That today, presently, right now, you sitting there, you are further away from God's call on your life than you've ever been. Seven Mile Road. It has been difficult for me to dive into spiritual slumber without cause for concern over my life, my prayerlessness, how numb I can be to all of the difficult, hard circumstances that everybody is dealing with right now in my home, in my neighborhood, in my city, in your lives. And yet what makes me so concerned is that we collectively can be a people who say all the right things, who rehearse the right truths, and convince ourselves that we're doing just fine. Second page of Jonah's journal. The title of it would be Numb and Prayerless, too distracted to see his own folly. And so others around him have to be the ones to identify you're being ridiculous. You make no sense. You're a living, breathing oxymoron. In all of your empty religion, you have drifted into spiritual slumber and now it's on display for all to see you see said Marod, jonah is exposed he's exposed his empty religion has led him to have a distorted view of god's character and of others worth and it gets to the point where his distorted view has now led to a a a, a distorted view of life and death itself look with me back in the text look me in verse 12 In verse 12, they ask him, what do we need to do to make this sea stop from killing us? And what does he say? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Throw me overboard. You want this to go away? You have to kill me. Instead of obeying, Jonah would rather die. (laughs) He'd rather call it a quits. That actually do the very thing that God called him to do. He has such a distorted, warped view of God, of others, and of even life itself now, he would rather die than to obey. But notice the pagan sailor's response. In an, uh, an opposing reality, a contrasting way, verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, See, they're trying with all that is within them. We don't want to kill this guy, even though it's all his fault. Clearly, he told us so. We don't want to throw him overboard. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. And there's a phrase that's missing in our translation that's there in the original language. They beseeched God. They pleaded to God. They cried out desperately to God, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. All of a sudden, the the main interaction we get with the living God is from the pagan sailors who now look to him and are crying with desperation in their voice. O Lord, please forgive us. Be merciful to us because you've done what you've pleased. You've done what you've desired. Lay not on us the, the penalty of this innocent blood. We find that in verse 16... At the end of our passage, the men end up fearing the Lord exceedingly, and it says that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I need us to understand together that you can't, on like a ship in water, make a burning sacrifice. That doesn't really, that doesn't really work out. They, they go to the next town, is what this insinuates. They have to go to a town with the synagogue. They go in, they offer, they buy pigeons or whatever animals they want to sacrifice, they burn those sacrifices. And then there's a clunky phrase at the end of verse 16. Our translation says, in a nicer way, they made vows. In the original language, it's they vowed vows to God, or they promised promises to God. It's the double effect of two words side by side to say they are devoting their life to God. They're making promises of the whole of their lives, vowing to him. That's the end of the story for these sailors, which contrasts so much from Jonah's tale where do we find Jonah as all of this is happening Jonah has become a relational wrecking ball everywhere he goes everywhere he turns he's just knocking more things down into rubble he's a relational wrecking ball he cares so little about these strangers he's met he would prefer that they die in a storm than for him to obey and go to Nineveh you see, if, if your empty religion is allowed to fester from conditional obedience to spiritual slumber, let me tell you the result. The result is relational ruin. It's relational ruin. Why? Because everybody around Jonah recognizes that he's so convinced of his ways, he's so self-centered in his thoughts, he's so partial to certain people and not to others. What happens to Jonah? Jonah. He gets discarded. He's completely disconnected and isolated because he is a relational wrecking ball. His empty religion has harmed so many people around him that nobody is left. He's completely isolated. You see, this is the result of empty religion relational ruin. Well, then, is that the end? is that the end of the sermon, uh, you may be sitting there and thinking, well, preacher, uh, if this is the journey into God's missionary heart, I think I'm going to count myself out. Uh, I think I'm going to be just fine over here. What I need us to recognize together is this. It does. It, it does beg the question like why? why? Why would God go to such great lengths? I mean great lengths. We're not even in chapter 2 just yet great lengths to expose Jonah's empty religion. Why? Uh, as I get close to wrapping up here, I need to tell you a story. So my, my freshman year of college, this was 12 years ago now, which is crazy to think about, uh, went to the University of Texas, and I, and I need to tell you, I could not wait. I could not wait to get out of the the microscope that was my life of being a pastor's son, right? Like, I I had to do everything right. I had to be the friend that all the other parents wanted their child to be their friend. Like, I I had to put on this image, have all the right answers. I had to be the one to raise my hand in all Bible studies. And, like, I was so excited to get out. And so I get to Austin, Texas. And believe me when I say my first six months, uh, Jonah won, written all over it. I would still make my way to church services on Sunday morning, but I would come half asleep and maybe still sobering up. Like that, that, was, that was the first handful of months of my freshman year of college, chasing after every other thing I could possibly think of, but still claiming, like, I've got the right answer still. Let me, put, let me take one in my back pocket right here for you. Forgiveness, mercy for me. See, that was the life that I led. And all of a sudden, like a tidal wave, uh, I got hit back to back with shingles and scabies. And I, and I remember in my gesture dormitory mirror, and they give you like this really ugly sink mirror situation in the dorm room, uh, next to the hall where other people could hear me crying. But I was crying, and I remember for the first time in a long time, I cried out to God, why? Why is this happening? As I was literally looking at my skin, my flesh deteriorating before my eyes, like why is this happening to me? And I heard God's voice. This hasn't happened many times, but I heard God's voice and He said, I'm not going to let you run any further. Not one step further. You are living for dying things, not one step further. And that phrase, not one step further, stuck with me throughout all of college. Not one step further. So why? Why does God go through such great lengths to expose my empty religion, and your empty religion, because he's he's trying to help you grasp the depth of his mercy for you, unmerited, his grace, undeserved, his compassion that brims over his love for you in spite of you, not one step further. I'm not going to let you sink into the pit of your empty religion anymore. Come this way. You see, what he's trying to do is reveal to you and to me the depth of his heart of compassion, seven-mile road, God's heart brims over for you with great affection, with compassion that you and I could not dare to hope to measure. That's the love of God, the compassion of God. And let me tell you something, all you have to do today, all you have to do today is receive it. If you're an Enneagram 3 achiever like me or maybe an Enneagram 1 like Tyler, a perfectionist, you might, you might be thinking throughout this sermon, right? Like, okay, I've got to think about what do I need to do to receive the grace of God? Like, how do, I, how do I make up like the perfect list of to-dos to achieve that? Or how do I come up with the perfect process in order to receive that holy? Let me tell you something. All you have to do, stop it. Stop it. Just receive it. That's all you have to do whether it's for the thousandth time, like Jonah probably needed, or maybe for the first time, like the sailors needed. All you have to do is receive it. That's it. Why? How is that possible? It's because Jesus, who comes just some years, some generations after Jonah, is actually the better Jonah. He's the better Jonah. And he is inviting you to receive him today. You see, this Jesus is the epitome the perfect depiction of obedience unconditional right he obeyed the father's call he took on flesh he ventured down into a sinful world and he lived the perfect life that you and i could not live wholly submitted to the word of god and the ways of god that's him further still He was not in a spiritual slumber. He did not drift off into numbness for all the ways that his creation had gone haywire. What did he do instead? He was prayerfully focused. He would retreat away into silence and solitude, time and again. Why? To make sure that he was razor sharp down the line on the mission God had set before him. Perfectly obedient. Prayerfully focused. And what does that lead to for Jesus? It doesn't make any sense, but he received relational ruin just like Jonah now how does that make any sense why would Jesus receive relational ruin and the reason is this he came into a world that did not receive him he lived a life that you could not have hoped to live and you and I together with the people of that time 2,000 years ago what we deemed of Jesus was we don't want you we don't want to go that way and so what do we do The very individuals that he brought into his inner circle were the ones who betrayed him. And on the night that he needed them most, what did they all do? They scattered to the winds and abandoned him. Further still, the very people he came to save, to redeem, to rescue, are the very ones that would spit in his face, mock him, insult him, and laugh at him as they thrust a crown of thorns down his brow. Then they raised him naked upon a cross and they sneered him continually as they nailed his hands and his feet, piercing him up, continuing to insult the one that claimed to be there for them. You see, this Jesus, in perfect obedience, prayerfully focused, received relational ruin so that you and I would never have to so that you and I would never have to be thrust into the waves of God's divine wrath that we deserve, so that you and I would never have to taste the cup of God's judgment that you and I deserve a drink. This Jesus, the better Jonah, did everything so that you and I could just receive it. And so Seven Mile Road, that's my ask today. Don't come up with the perfect list of to-dos to achieve it. Don't perfect a process to, to, to deserve it. This morning, Jesus, the better Jonah, just asked: "The depth of His compassion is available for you, and all you have to do is receive it." Amen. Let me pray. Well, Father, I am grateful this morning. Thank you that. Uh, thank you that your Son accomplished so much in our stead. And that even at stories like Jonah, chapter 1, as we have gotten to be listeners, recipients of his story, his retelling of, of events, thank you, God, that it doesn't just stop there, that it's impossible to read your word and to not allow it to wreck us, assess us, expose us. God, I pray that this morning as we get to sing a couple of songs in response to all that you've done, that we would worship you. That we would praise your name because you are worthy of it. King Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you took on the waves. You were hurled into the sea so that we might never have to be. God, we love you. And we ask that you would lead us now by your spirit to praise you, to glorify you to honor you. You're, you're worthy of that this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.